So Liz talked to us last night about uh, last week about am I a true worshipper? And she gave a very powerful sermon, and it was a very passionate sermon because it came from the core of her. It was a, in itself an act of worship. So when she was actually speaking, she was actually worshipping God in, in the way that she was talking to us. And uh, I could feel it, I could sense it, and, uh, and it touched me deeply. Um, the Spirit of God called us to worship Him. Uh, he, he, he's challenged us through the, the, the sermon last week not to hide from Him, but to come humbly before Him and to, and to receive forgiveness and refreshment in our lives when we approach them. And if you... If you've done that this week, you will have found the freshness of God's Spirit you know, calling and drawing you back into a relationship with Him. Today I want to, want to ask the question, which is similar to that question that we had last week, am I a true worshipper? I want to ask the question, what is true worship? So what is true worship? So if I am a true worshipper, then I'll be able to say, I'll tell you what true worship really is. Now, the definition to the word worship is an inter- for the English word is an interesting word. It's an old English word, and it, it, um, it has this idea of worth-ship, or to be recognizing the worth of something. So we, when we talk about worship, it, it's an interesting idea. But it's not just the idea of singing. It's the idea of uh, attributing a level of worth or value or esteem to someone. So that actually, when we're actually worshipping God, we're saying, God, you have value, you have esteem, we honour you, we, we respect you, we hold you up there, we are at this point of time acknowledging your worth to us. So that's what the word worship is. Now it's become a lot of things over the years, and and when we um, when we 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 sit in church, we come to the worship service on the Sunday morning. So oftentimes that means the the, the Sunday morning worship service is usually the one for the old folk who come and they have a sort of a more sing hymns type service, you know. And, and then the youth service is an evangelistic service at night time, which is more out there and go get the souls and, and stuff like that. So we, it, the word worship has become a, a colloquial word that means just about a, 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 lot of, a lot of things, you know. And for a lot of us, when we, when we come to the act of worship, sometimes the things we do in the act of worship really have nothing to do with attributing worth to God. It's more about what we are feeling about ourselves. So if I think back to how people approach God and, and, and how we look to sort of say something to God, my mind goes back to Cain and Abel right at the beginning of, the, of Genesis. And you will have, uh, you'll be familiar in, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 3, uh, in the process of time it came to pass that Cain bought an offering of fruit of the ground to the Lord, and Abel also bought of the first fruit of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So this was an act of worship that they were called to bring an offering to God. God wanted them to bring an offering, and it, and it came about the time where these two brothers would bring their offering to God. And interesting that they one recognized that there was a process by which they would which would acknowledge God's worth in the whole thing. We have life because you gave us life, you covered our sins, 
you are worth our, our praise and our worship because you saved us and forgave us. And so the offering of the lamb and, uh, and, and, the, and the pieces of the lamb reflected the thing that God had done to cover their sin. So he was aware of it. So Abel came the root of God and said, you, I acknowledge you are the forgiver. I, 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 I give you worth. I, I, I recognize that you are the great one who has forgiven us for our great sin. Whereas Cain, the worship of God was more about something he wanted to impress God with. So it really wasn't, I want to see your worth. It was, can you see my worth in what I am doing? And so the worship really was quite perverted. And I understand why it wasn't accepted. I know, I know it was God's fruit from the ground and God actually caused it seed and it wasn't something he'd done. But it was something he had done. And if any of you have grown vegetables, you know that they can become quite a, uh, you know, have you seen the size of my tomatoes? You know, what do you use to fertilize those tomatoes? Oh, I can't tell you, but they're big, aren't they? So there's a certain sense of pride that's involved in the growing of vegetables and the growing and mustering of a, of, of a huge crop. You've done something, you know, you've done something really well and you're quite proud of it. So you're bringing it now to God as a, as a sign of worship. Sometimes the things that we do are just a product of our own sense of lack of worth and we're bringing them to God in the presence of people who say, aren't you impressed? If our worship is a product of my hard work and I want you to see it and I want God to see it, then I've got to be competent, adequate and achieving in every regard to be a person of worth. I want the worth. And if I don't get it and you don't recognize what I'm doing for you, then I'm going to get upset. I'm going to get extremely upset and I'm going to get sad and, and, and not going to be hand, handling it very well because you don't recognize all the, all the hard work that I've put in here. It's nothing about God and doing it for Jesus. It's nothing about spending the time and serving just to love Jesus because he's worth it. Doing the work that you do in life for other people just because he's worth it. No, it's all about if you don't notice what I do, I'm not going to feel like I'm worth it. And the action of doing this is nothing to do with God. It's everything to do with are you being noticed? Are you being worshipped? And so sometimes when we think about worship, we think, well, I'm doing all these good things. Stop it. If you think that you need to be praised for the good things that you are doing, if you think that you are going to get sad in the mouth because someone doesn't recognize what good things you're doing, you are not doing it for Jesus. Don't say you are doing it for Jesus. You are doing it so that you can receive esteem and worth. Now that's a raw thing there because we are brought up in a in a climate where we strive so hard to get worth from other people or try and be worth in front of other people. Worship, true worship, has nothing to do with you. It has everything with you esteeming the value of God in your life. So the product of man's effort is not true worship. It's not true worship. It doesn't mean that we don't work. I mean, God loves it when we work. We were created for good works that we should grow up in them and do what he wants us to do. But those good works are a privilege for us to show what he's done for us. We don't do those good works to attain worth. 
We are given worth irrespective of what we do. We work out of the worth that we are given from him and the work then shines forth as a shining light to his worth and what he's done for us. A person who really has this sorted in their mind doesn't need to have a thank you from you. Doesn't mean we don't say thank you. But Nathan would sit up there and he would work there and he doesn't need a thank you from Uncle Mark. He wasn't even thinking it. He was just doing it for Jesus. Because it's worth, he's worth it. That's why we do that. I want you to think about that. Ask yourself the question. Sometimes when I come to church and I start to hear the music play, is it more about I want people to see what I've been doing this week or I'm stopping everything about me and I'm looking into the eyes of Jesus and I'm saying, Jesus, you're worth it. I esteem you today. I'm forgetting about me. I'm captivated by you. You know, creating an emotional atmosphere, a human, human exuberance is not true worship. I know, I know you've been in those meetings which are very exciting. And I think there is something about a lovely, exciting meeting where you feel and sense the, the atmosphere of the Spirit of God there, where you can just feel everybody is so in tune with Jesus. There's nothing like it, really, when you get with a group of people and there's unity in the group and it's like the oil of God just comes down over our heads and runs down through the heart and we feel and sense we are one in Him and we just rejoice and it's lovely, isn't it? What an emotional time we had. What a wonderful thing we had. Wow, what an experience of God we had here. That was true worship. It was emotional. We all cried. There was some level of exuberance. That was nice. But does it always have to be emotional and does it always have to be exuberant for us to be really worshipping God? And if the emotions and the exuberance are there, does it necessarily mean because this emotion and exuberance is that we are worshipping God? Maybe not. I remember reading through Leviticus, and you might have remembered this too, a guy called Nadab, remember him and his brother? Remember them? Listen, I'll read about it. Leviticus chapter 9, verse 22, And Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them, and he stepped down after making the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tents of meeting. When they came out and blessed the people, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Then fire came down from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offerings and the portions of fat on the altar. And when the people saw it, they shouted and they fell on their faces. Whoa! God had just done it. There was a manifest, exuberant expression of the holiness of God consuming something on the altar. Everybody just fell on their faces and said, Oh! Yeah, let's get all excited about it. Let's do that again. Well, that was so much fun. Let's do it again. Now listen, what happened? The very next verse, this is what it said. Leviticus 1. And Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense in it, and offered profane fire before the Lord. 
which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke about, saying, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And because of the people, I will, I must, and before the people, I, mu- I must be glorified. You see, what happened was these guys were all exuberant, got all emotional. They'd never seen anything like that. But they all got shocked with the manifest display of God's presence when they had offered up the, the altar, uh, the, the offerings in the right way. Useful exuberance. Emotional, useful exuberance. That's all I could put it down to. I mean, I don't think these, ki- these kids were, were sitting there thinking, you know, what can we do to really stir up the anger of God? I don't think they were sitting there thinking, oh, man, you know, that, I think they were all exuberant and I think they were all excited and I thought, wow, let's get something here. Let's do that again. Let's get, get some incensing. And they broke off from honoring and worshiping God according to the way that God wanted them. And they went with the excitement and the exuberance of youth to do something themselves. And God struck them dead. And I'll tell you something. This is not something that's just... You go to the New Testament, you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and you get this idea... In the first chapter, the first verse of 1 Corinthians 7, Now according to spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to become unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mood idols. However, you were led, he says, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit or the Holy Spirit. And essentially what he's saying there is, look, you were led off to dumb idols and you did crazy things, crazily exuberant emotional things when you were following idols. We know how crazy they did. Elijah and the, ta- and the, and, and the prophets of Baal, they, you go first and they cut themselves and they beat themselves and they danced around and they called out. and That was the crazy exuberance that they had in terms of calling out to their God. Christianity can be a bit like that, you know. You can go places and you can see some really silly and weird stuff in the name of God. We had these things, you know, we, churches go through these situations. They've done it all their lives. I mean, I remember when I was young and then we had this uh, in, in Sydney in New Zealand and I was only 14, 15 years old. And they had this craze coming demon possession in Christians. The question, can a Christian be demon possessed? And so we had people who were vomiting all over the place in the church service, laying down, rolling, calling like snakes, standing up and being oh, Jesus set me free, and then next week they come back vomiting again over the place and writhing like snakes. And, and there was a big debate in the church whether you can be a Christian and be demon-possessed and all those sort of things. We're not going to go into those issues, but it was like a fad, like a crazy thing. People got saved, and people got delivered, but there was a lot of manifestations of emotional exuberance which had nothing to do with God in the midst of it. And if you think, okay, that's God because that person's shaking like a lip. It may not be God. It might be a demon that's making them shake like that. It might not be a demon. It might be themselves who are shaking like that. You don't know how or what's making them shake. You just know that they're shaking. You can't tell unless God gives you some spiritual insight what actually is going on there. It's useful exuberance. And when the focus is not toward God and glorifying God, but focuses on the person who's manifesting their way, you can be sure of one thing that God is not getting the glory 
the person is getting the focus. So sometimes it's difficult. Useful exuberance doesn't necessarily mean that God is showing up at that place. You can be like Nadab and his brother, rushing there, presumptuously thinking, oh, if we get this beat off right, if we get the smoke machine billowing out there like that, if we get the lights fanning up and down like that, we'll get the presence or the feeling and the sense of God happening here and there. We go, whoa, God's in the place. I remember when I was younger, and I'm not saying this, <laughs> we had a big crusade. Uh, um, and I was, it was my job to paint a big backdrop for the crusade. I don't know whether some of you can remember that. They had a minister coming through. He was a big healing evangelist. And so the big backdrop was bigger than the large the screen here. And I had to flick it all out, chalk it all out, and paint a big... Can you remember, Matthew, can you remember that? Sorry? Oh, I don't know who he was. I just remember the big painting I had to paint. So we had this little special trick in the middle of the painting. In the middle of the painting, it was all white. But in the middle of the white, we had painted white fluorescent paint type thing. So when you turned the ultraviolet light on, out would come Jesus. Oh, it was a great effect. It was just a great effect. We knew that we were going to blow them away. Youthful exuberance is the presence of Jesus there, really. So we have this great big thing. At the end, the lights go down. You know, the, the light's coming up. There's this big scene in front of us. Looks like a, a sunrise. Then they hit on the ultraviolet lights and there stands Jesus with his hands hanging out like that. And everybody goes, oh! Was Jesus really there though? Did he front up? Did he just say, you know? Useful exuberance. I'm glad I wasn't struck dead. <laughs> but it taught me something when I thought about it. That you can do a lot of things in youth and be exuberant and emotional about them. But if it's not focused on Jesus and his worth, it's not true worship. You might not get struck dead. Fire might not come out from the altar and consume you. But you need to understand something. Worship has to do with esteeming and worthing, uh, recognizing the worth of God, valuing him. Yes, question. Absolutely. I mean, there's nothing wrong. I mean, God is a God of emotions. Let's not actually not say that God doesn't have emotions. He rejoices over us with singing, it says. God is very keen for us to, to have emotions, and he created emotions for us to express toward him. Except those emotions are not the thing that we should focus on. A lot of, a lot of times we're looking for the high, the sensual high in the experience, and, and attributing the sensual high of the experience, you know, to experiencing God. The reality is, no, we might experience some sensual high, but that is not God. That's, an, that's interfacing with God who is outside of that. The emotional experience is an emotional experience. It's just my emotions getting all stirred up. Equally, if I'm being burned at the stake, I probably would feel the same sort of emotions, but I must worship him either way. I must worship him in the fire pit of, of, uh, of being burned at the stake or in the mosh pit. I must worship him. Either way, we often think, no, if unless I'm feeling some sort of really extreme sense of emotion, 
then I'm not worshiping God. Now, that's not the focus. The focus is you don't, you can be, you can be leaning on your staff, dying, watching your life drift away and worship God without a word because your heart is in tune with him. You can be stuck on a cross, nailed to it and breathe your last and worship God because that's what you're doing with your life. It's just acknowledging his worth and honor. It's not about your emotions. Your emotions come and go. The thing that happens with emotions is experience. Don't think that your experience is the true worship. True worship is a matter of heart. It's not a matter of experience. Man's methodology and procedure is not true worship. Now, if you were reading and if you are reading now through First Chronicles, you would have got to... First Chronicles chapter six, uh, 13 and I think chapter 16. And in First Chronicles chapter 13, you read the story about David getting all excited about bringing the ark back into Jerusalem. It's been, and I haven't even looked at it since Saul was taken into captivity and then it was, then it was placed in the, in the man's house and it was there. And David says, okay, we have to seek the Lord. We have to go and get the, the, um, the ark and bring it back. Well, the guys that, where the ark was, they decided that they would bring it back in a cart. So they made a brand new cart and they put it on the back of the moxen and they went down past the threshing floor. And when they got to a threshing floor, the cart must have hit a stone or something. So, the, I mean, the, the ark is not that big, you know. Solid gold, heavy, but not that big. And it's toppled. And... Uzzah, U-Z-Z-A-H, stretches out his hand to stop it from falling over. And he gets struck dead. <laughs> Bang, hits the floor. Now what's happening around him? So the cart's coming in here. Uzzah and his brother, Ohio, is on the back of the cart. They're driving the thing along. David is singing. There's instruments all around. There's a whole lot of noise. There's a lot of emotional exuberance going on. There's a lot of excitement. Why? Because they're bringing, the, they're bringing the ark back. We've made this production. You'd love this production. We put it together. You'll love the presence of God is being brought back by the production, the show that we're presenting to you. So it was all being presented. It all choreographed very well till it got to the threshing floor. It's interesting that you get to the threshing floor because that's where you, you separate the wheat and the chaff. You sort out what's good and what's rubbish. And it's at the threshing floor that God bumps the cart and user, and his name means strength, stretches out his hand to stop the thing from falling. And God says to him, sorry, buddy, this is not about your strength, not about what you're doing. This is about me. And you ain't pleasing me right now. You're not pleasing me. All this noise and all this production is not true worship. I am not pleased. And he struck him dead. Well, that said, everybody, I mean, his brother, Ohio, his name means friendly. Sometimes we try and produce things that will bring the presence of God into a place that are produced by our strength and a sense of wanting to be friendly to people. We want to present a Christianity that's user-friendly. You know, make everybody like us. And sometimes that's just doomed to fail. 
because Jesus might not be in it. David goes away and in chapter 16, after he's spent some time thinking about this and asking God about it, he gets a very profound understanding. The presence of God, which is the ark, the ark stands for the presence of God, must be carried on the backs of priests, not on the back of a cart. Let me bring that up to you so you understand what it means today. You don't get to see God in a Christian production at a church somewhere that makes your head spin. You get to see God in your life when you face situations because you carry the presence of God with you. There's a big difference between putting on a show for people, trying to manifest the presence of God in a show for people, and recognizing that you carry the presence of God with you wherever you are, whatever you're doing. You see, we can, we, can, we can get to the point in our lives where we think, okay, you know, if, if only we could do something bigger and better and, and produce something that's really sort of knock people over. And Jesus says, you don't need to do anything crazy. You just have to acknowledge me in your life, acknowledge my power in your life, and live, live glorifying me and showing that I'm worth it in your life. That's enough to carry the presence into, the, into where you want it to go. Yet we resort to man's methodology often because we escape scrutiny at that point. It's easier for the group to do something than for me to live in a holy relationship with God who wants me to carry the presence of God in my life. It's easy for me to, to put my hand in on a group and get a group going and stuff and to escape the scrutiny of what it is to live in obedience before God. And God said, I, I don't want you to put something together like that, I want you to walk and be obedient before me and walk with me. So man's methodology doesn't do it. And I say superficial worship is not true worship. In Matthew chapter uh, 15, verse 8 to 9, it says, and you can't read it there, but it's so small. These people draw near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their hearts is far from me. And in vain they worship me teaching us doctrines, the traditions of men. Then we, get very, we can get very large crowds and we can get very exuberant and it looks like everybody is honouring and they all call it out. It, we, we read in, um, in uh, Ezekiel 33, and I'll read this to you for you. To, it says, as, as for you, son of man, and, and God is speaking to Ezekiel. He says, your people are talking together about you by the walls and the, at the doors of the houses, saying to each other, listen to what they're saying. He says, come and hear the message that has come from the Lord. He says, my people come to you as they usually do and sit before you to hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. And what, what, what he's actually saying is that they were really, they were really excited about going to go to church and listen to something. Come on, you come to our church and listen to this man preach. Lots of us go there. In fact, if you come there, we've got the biggest youth group. We've got the biggest this or we've got the biggest that. It's just an amazing. You come and listen to him preach. And they want to be there listening to the preaching. But it's superficial. Because God says they want to be there, but they don't put it into practice. They don't do what, they don't do what, what the man says to do, what the preacher says to do. He says... 
In verse 32 he says, Indeed to them you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well, for they hear your words and do not put them into practice. And that's the problem. He says, superficial meetings, to, meetings together. Now, if you, if you think back and ask yourself a question, when else in the Bible did this happen? Superficial meetings where people coming together just in a superficial way. And what did God show us about that? Well, my, my mind traveled back to the book of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira. Well, here we have the church. It's firstborn, and it's, it's growing, and people are devoting themselves to the fellowship of, together. The apostles teach us to prayer and to breaking bread together from home to home. The, the place is growing, and there are thousands of people in the place. It's just everywhere. And there's so much God focus there that people are bringing their land and selling their land and bringing the money to the apostles and they're saying, look, here, look, we've got a heap, you know, here, look, minister the needs of the people in the, in, the, in the congregation. It's just noble, very noble. Everything is, this is a community that, that we all wish we could live in. I mean, the fact that God had told them to go into all the world and preach the gospel and scatter, had they had forgotten that, they were just huddling together in Jerusalem. It wasn't exactly what God asked them to do. But anyway, we got some grace happening there and they were there. Ananias and Sapphira decided that they would introduce into the church at that time some superficiality. They thought, we're going to bring an offering to God. Everybody's bringing an offering. That's God. We're worshipping God with our offering. We're going, to bring, we're going to tell her, God, you're worth it. We're going to say, we're bringing this and God, it's for you because you're worth it. We love you and everything. God is going to say, yeah, but you know what? is in the back of our minds is that we want to get something out of this because there's a lot of money to put in the plate. How about we put just 80% in the plate and keep 20% for ourselves? They don't need to know that. We'll just give it to God. So everybody will say, oh, you great body, you've given your money, ha, 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 100%, that's real good. So you'll get the praise. No, it's not giving the glory to God, it's you. And we'll create a superficiality. You don't see deep inside, you just see the face. And in behind it is a deception. So we have superficiality first occurring in the church, in the worship service. And what does God do about that? Peter says, Who do you think you're fooling here? You're not lying to man, you're lying to God. How much did you get for the land? And when you had the land, wasn't it still yours? How much did you get? He says, this much? That's a lie. And God struck him dead. Right at the... That's, that's what God thinks about superficiality and service. And deception. Friends, when we're talking about true worship, God sets the boundaries of it. He defines what it looks like. We know that... It, that fooled around because Ananias had spoken to Sapphira and they had arranged this and so he, he was taken out and buried in the ground and, and she came in later. She didn't know what had happened to her husband and Peter says, uh, come tell me, Sapphira, how much did you get for the land? Did you get this much for the land? And she said, that's the much we got. How could you conspire to get... Here she was. She got an opportunity to, to say, you know, you know, I'm going to tell the truth now. No, she didn't. She just told a lie too. She was superficial as well. And God just said, that's it. I'm not in. So the first occurrence of this in the church was God's wrath. Don't fool with God. 
Don't mess with God. It's an interesting idea. It's sort of hard for us to handle, but what is true worship then? Is ritualistic practices true worship? It says in Colossians chapter 2, verses 18, 19, and 23, it says, Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in the false humility and the worship of angels. So the word worship there is a different word. It means the ritualistic sort of religious ceremonies that are, that are coming about uh, the, the, the worship service. So it's like, you know, lighting candles or, you know, killing chickens or whatever you do if you're worshiping angels. He says, intruding into those things which he, he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, that's Jesus, from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows and, and, and is increased with the increase that comes from God. Verse 23 says, These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, or it says will worship in the King James Version, that says will worship. That means you can, you can put yourself through some difficult stuff. Some churches will say, you know, and they may not be churches, they may be cults, you can, if you come to church, you can crawl from there on, the, on your knees all the way up to here, and then when you get to here, you can light 5,000 candles here, and then you can go over there and beat yourself with a rod and say, you know, a dozen prayers upside down, and then maybe God will be pleased with you. You know, you can have a whole lot of rituals that you have to do to sort of appease God. That's sort of ritualistic practices that you do. You do those because you think that God is impressed by those. The test for those things is that they have no effect on your fleshly behavior, the things that you do. True worship, when you're acknowledging God, it acknowledges that God is Lord and says, you are Lord of my life and you are the controller of my life. The rituals only there to remind us of the things that we should never forget. When the ritual becomes the focus of our attention, we have forgotten the meaning of the ritual. If we just uphold the rituals, the ritual has no power to change us. It's the meaning behind the ritual that changes our life. Rituals are okay if you're going to forget something. They point you in a direction to show you what you shouldn't forget. And when you look at what you shouldn't forget, you should forget the ritual and remember the, the one that is in behind the ritual. That's the point of the ritual. I don't want to bag rituals here. But oftentimes, people do the rituals and they have completely forgotten why they do that. The woman, she sits there. She gets the leg of lamb and she saws off the back end of the leg of lamb. She gets to the bone and she hacks it through and then she takes it and lays it in the dish beside the leg of the lamb. Why do you do that, mum? I don't know. My mother used to do it. And her mother used to do it. It's become a bit of a ritual. That's how we cook lamb in our house. We take a big slice off the butt of it and lay it down beside it. That's how we cook it. Grandma, why do you do that? Ah, oh, dearie, we couldn't fit it in the oven if it was a full leg of lamb. Completely lost the meaning for cutting it off. It had become a, a meaningless ritual on how to cook a leg of lamb. That's what happens with churches often. We create a ritual and people start just following the ritual. Why do you do that? I don't know. I just do that, you know. Why? What's it for? What's it about? You know, what does it point to? I don't know. I can't remember. I'm not sure. Why is the carpet blue? And why do the seats have to be blue? Oh, blue's the color of heaven. Who told you that? Oh, it's in the, I don't know. 
Why do we have it in small cups or in large cups? Or why is it unleavened or leaven? Or all the kinds of things that are associated with church ritual are there for a reason to point us to something. And if we forget and lose to something, it's just become the ritual and we've, we've lost the meaning. And it will have no benefit in our lives. It will not help us in our lives. Ritual does not stop us from sinning. Never has, never will. Ritualistic worship will not stop us from sinning and it doesn't acknowledge God. So what is true worship? Jesus points to three aspects of true worship in Mark chapter 4 when he's talking to the devil. He uses two words. The devil is tempting him and and Jesus says to the devil, that Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. He uses two words. One is a combined word and the other one is just a single word to describe worship. The first word is the word proxneo and it means to kiss the hand in reverence and it means to bow. So it's a combined word, pros, forward, towards, neo, to kneel. It's a combined word. That's the word that's mostly used with regard to worship. You shall worship the Lord in spirit and in truth is this word, prosneo. It means to reverence and to adore to the point where you come before God and it's as if when you come into the presence of God, you take the hand of God and you recognize and you kiss his hand. You come before him and you kiss his hand in reverence and you bow your knee before him like that, saying, God, you are worth it. I reverence you. I love you. I, 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 I recognize your worth here and I bow myself before you as your humble servant. Worship is that bowing and that prostrating of your heart before God. It has nothing to do with singing. It has nothing to do with playing the guitar. You can worship God while you're singing. You can worship God while you're playing guitar. You can worship God while you're mowing the lawns. You can worship God while you're drinking in the, in the, in the coffee in the coffee shop. You can worship God wherever you are because it's the attitude of heart that bows before God in reverence and honors Him with your life. That is what... It is. And the other word is the word latrio. It means service. It means to humbly serve in obedience. It's like, what do you want me to do? I'll do it. So you can come to church on Sunday. You can jump and sing and dance. You can have a wonderful experience. You can have emotional times and you can go out and it means nothing with regard to worship. You may think that you've been worshiping God, but it's just been lip service because when God looks at you, he asks the question, are you kissing my hand? Are you bowing down before me? Are you saying to me, I want to humbly obey you? Because no matter what you do, if that's not the core of you, if that's not part of your life, you're not worshiping God. True worship is a job on the inside. It's the heart that looks to God. And folks, when your mum tells you to, to make your bed in the morning and tidy up your room, there's an opportunity to worship God right there. Because you can simply say, Lord Jesus, I thank you for my mother who cares about me. I thank you for the life 
that she gives and I thank you that you are in her life. I, if, she, if you weren't in her life, I don't know where we would be. I want to honour you now, Jesus, by recognising that you're worth my humble service. I will get up and make my bed and clean my room. That's worth more than singing a thousand songs on your iPod saying Jesus is good. That's an act of worship before God saying, I recognise your presence in my life to control my life, to order my life. I honour you in a very practical way. Paul talks about worship as well. What is true worth it? There's a number of scriptures that we could talk about. Truth on the inside is worship. The psalmist writes in Psalm 51, verse, and this is, this is after he's had a moral fall with uh, Bathsheba. He's done some terrible stuff, none of the stuff that you'd have it, probably have even thought about doing. How many of you are murderers or adulterers? Probably not. This is the king of Israel who's done this terrible stuff. So he's confronted, but he comes and he's got this worshipful heart. I mean... God notes that there is nobody like David, nobody has a heart after God like David. And this is where we see this heart of David. He says, Behold, you desire truth on the inward parts, he first says in Psalm 51, verse 6. And in the inward part, you make me to know wisdom. So he says, What you want from me, God, is you want me to be real and honest on the inside. You want me to look at the situation, see it as it is, and stop fooling and lying to myself. You want me to look at you and recognize that you are in control of my life and that you need to be acknowledged. And you want me to be honest with myself here. I'm going to be honest with you now, Lord. I, I, I look at myself and I say, yep, I'm, I'm low and you are high. I'm little and you are very big. And then in verse 16 and 17, he says these words. He says, behold, you, he says, uh, you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offerings. He's talking about offering up sacrifices, some display of ritualistic, you know, I'm sorry, you know. He says, you don't want that. He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These are God you will not despise. And what he's saying to you is, it's not what you physically do, it's what you are experiencing on the inside with God, a broken and a contrite heart. I don't know what we do sometimes, but some of us like to pay the price for the sin that we commit. We commit the sin. We say, oh God, I've done it again. So what is it this time? We're like a Catholic church. You know, come on, you've got to say a hundred Hail Marys, five, you know, crawl around on your knees and, you know, ten, oh my God, whatever they do, you know, a rosary bead. We say, all right, then that'll do. I'll do that. I'll do that. I'll just do that. And we, we do our ritualistic thing thinking that God that is going to be happy about that. He's not happy about that. He wants you to have a broken heart about what you did. He wants you to be broken in spirit. He says the Lord is near to those who are broken in spirit. We often think that if we do something wrong, that if I read my Bible more, if I pray longer, if I go to church twice now, I'll give more in the offering, then God will be pleased. God is not pleased with those things. He doesn't need your offering. He doesn't need you to go to church more. He needs you to be the vessel that carries the Spirit of God, that walks in the Spirit of God and lives with God. And He needs you to recognize that you have to stay broken and contrite and not be proud and, and haughty and think that you can deal with your sin in a, in a superficial way. 
and think that you've paid for your sins by your behaviour. Nothing can pay for your sins. Your sins are terribly, terribly wicked. Nothing you can do can fix it. You are a flawed animal. The only one that can save you from your sins is Jesus and his offering. You need to have an understanding of that and a broken and a contrite heart with regard to that. Philippians says, we are those who, he says, Paul says, uh, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the spirit. He says, we worship God in the spirit. He says, and then he goes and says, and we have confidence in the flesh. I can put confidence in the flesh. He says, you ought to see my education. You should see the letters after my name, he says. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. Uh I'm, I'm all this, he says. But he says, I'm not going to tell you, he says, about all my credentials, he says, because I have no confidence in that. He says, all of that, and he uses a strong word, is excretion to me. It's dung. He says, they wouldn't put your hand on it. You don't pay that, you know. You see, you, you see these people, they walk dogs. How many got dogs here? You got dogs? When you go for a walk with a dog, you're meant to take a little plastic bag with you, aren't you? You're meant to. They have a little thing. You grab the plastic bag, you go walking with your dog, and the dog goes. And when it's finished that, you're meant to take the plastic bag, put the plastic bag over your hands, bend down, pick up the thing, pull the plastic bag over your hands, tile and not on it. You're meant to take that with you, I think, and put it in a rubbish bin somewhere. That would be what I would think. But some people just go like that and throw it into the bush. Well, it's a biodegradable bag, and the other is biodegradable, so we just throw it into the bush. So where I walk in the morning, there's a lot of little plastic bags laying on the side of the road. Takeaways, you know. Oh, you should have taken that away. Let me pick it up for you. You say, you wouldn't do that, Mark. Well, it's only in a plastic bag. But you wouldn't do that, would you? No, I wouldn't, actually. I wouldn't even touch the dog. I don't know how you do it. Let alone if you put your hand... What if there's a hole in the bag? Oh, oh isn't it the worst thing? And you don't know until you... Oh, you're scratching your face in the middle of the day and, oh, what's that? Oh, that was the dog. I mean, you wonder how much you've eaten. Now, let me, let me... You might laugh about that, but that's exactly the analogy that actually Paul is giving in terms of having confidence in your flesh. He's saying you wouldn't play with that stuff. If it was laying on the side of the road, you wouldn't go and play with it. You wouldn't put your hand in it. He says, I'm treating all of the confidence that I have in my flesh as dung, as stuff that you would just push away from you. You wouldn't have anything. Don't play in it. You'll get germs. He's saying this attitude of heart has to be completely selfless. The death of self is essential for true worship to take place. And a life of submission, living in submission to God is what takes over our lives. Paul says it in this verse, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. And he uses the word latria here, which is the different word. And him only shall you serve. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. You see, Jesus was a living sacrifice. He was nailed to the cross. Before he was nailed to the cross, he was beaten and ripped. His flesh was stripped off his bones. The end of the torture, they stuck him up on the tree and everything that God's wrath was able to deliver to him, he received in his body. 
He received it all. Every demonic accusation and every demonic condemnation, every sin that was possibly leveled against him was poured out full breath onto him and the punishment with it. And it was on him while he was alive. He did not die. Jesus didn't die. He wasn't killed. He gave his life a ransom. After everything was thrown at him, he lifted up his face and says, Father, it is finished. Like the judgment has been you delivered it. It's, it's all been had in my body. And still being alive. A living sacrifice. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And he breathed his life. And then he died. Now, his life wasn't taken from him. He gave his life for us. In the same way, therefore, we ought to have our lives crucified with Christ. In the same way, therefore, we are living sacrifices. Everything that is going to be leveled against us, we should take it and say, Jesus, live in me now. Live in me now. At the end of the exercise, my true worship is reflected in my ability to take everything that is thrown at me in, in, in life and to reflect God's glory in the midst of it all. Everything. He says, this is your true worship. Reflecting Jesus in every situation you face. Being a living sacrifice. A living sacrifice. Dying to sin daily. Dying to the world daily. Dying to flesh daily. Dying to the accusations of people around you daily. Dying to yourself on a daily basis. Living for Jesus only. He says, that's it. That's true worship. It has nothing to do with the way you play your guitar. And I'd let me say something to you, those who play guitars. If you learn that principle, you will play your guitar better than if you don't know it. Because if you play your guitar and you don't know it, all I will see is you. I won't see Jesus. But if you know that principle and you are a living sacrifice and you play your guitar, all I will see is Jesus. And sometimes I wonder what's happening when I look at music. Not in this church. I think that you're all doing well. <laughs> but I wonder who's up there in front when you see them. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Look at me. You think, is it really? Uh, do you really want me to? What's going on here? Friends, if you get the heart right, everything you do is right. No matter what you do, whether it's your business, whether it's your schooling, whether it's your education, whether it's your home life, it doesn't matter what you do. If you get your heart right, it will all be right. But if your heart is wrong, nothing will be right with whatever you do. What is true worship? True worship is a matter of the heart. Kissing the hand, bowing the knee, humbly, obediently serving the one who's worth it all. Amen. God bless you. Father, I pray that you help us, Lord, to live this 
Lord, we see so much that parades itself as being worship. But Lord, it has nothing to do with you. And Lord, as we go through the scriptures, we find that you've already spoken about it so clearly about how obnoxious it is before you. Help us to get the heart right, Father, so that everything that flows from our lives is worship to you. Help us to live in a place where we are continuously acknowledging you are great, you are awesome, you are wonderful, you are Lord, you are majestic, you are all that we have. Help us to live in such a place, Lord Jesus, where you become our all and all. You are our portion. Then, Lord, we know that everything that we do will be true worship. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Amen. Now, have you got any questions? I saw one hand up there before asking one of the last questions. It didn't stop. Do you have a question, Ruth? Yeah. You want to praise him for it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's no this difference is only a semantic difference. So if you're praising God, you're 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 thanking God and you're one, you're thanking God for the wonderful things He's done for your life. And and our lives should be full on a weekly basis with thanksgiving and praise to God. That, that that's fine. So that's thanksgiving and praise. And our, and worship is part that's part of it because we thank him because of his character. Worship, the core of worship is this acknowledgement of the worth and the value of God. That, I mean, I remember I talked to one lass and, and, and she said, well, this thing, demonic thing had been going through my head. Maybe you've heard it too. God's an egomaniac. He just wants all the praise and the glory for himself. You know, that's the accusation that had been tumbling through her mind. So every time that she went to start to tell God he was worth it, um, she would think, you know, but God wants me to say that to him. So he, he's got this flaw in the core of him because he just wants to have praise for himself. Well, you know, and that's the demonic lie to try and stop you from praising God. And, and I understand where that comes from, you know, because that's just quite simply the way the devil would actually confuse you. But if something is so worth something, it is so valuable, it is so esteemed in your mind, then all you want to do is thank God and praise Him because that's it. Now, if you were on death row and you were going to be killed, you were going to be taken out and machine gunned down by the Indonesian police because you had been trafficking drugs. Your death had come, the day of your death had come and you'd been lined up against the wall there. And at the moment before you were shot through, somebody came through and advocated for you and you got to go home to be with your family, you got home to be with your wife, you got home to be with your kids again, you got to be reunited with your friends that you'd lost, that you thought you were never going to see again, 
you would have some sense of gratitude and thanks whelming up in your heart for that person continuously. No matter if you're 80 years old, you would remember back to the day that you stood on that thing ready to be shot through with a gun and you remember this guy advocating for you and standing and getting and pleading your case and you got free. You would, you would, just, you would just always remember the love and, the, and that, that life would be worth something to you because of what it gave. You know, that's us in a nutshell with Jesus. You are going to be thrown headlong into hell. You were going to burn there forever ever and a day and nothing would save you from it. There was nothing you could do that would get you out of that. And Jesus came and he did something to save you. If you don't understand that, if you, can't, if you can't see that the Lord of the universe, the creator of the universe, the creator of our lives, the creator of my physical body actually intervened into life to save me from death. If I don't understand that, I haven't thought about it long enough. And I haven't believed the consequences of sin. And I haven't believed that Eternal life without God would be worse than you could ever, ever, ever imagine. And if I had ne- never thought about that much, I would might say, okay, why does he need to be praised? I'd be thinking I might probably be more important to me to be praised than God, you know. But if you get God and you see God for who he is, there's nothing else you want to do. When God is God, there's nothing else you want to do. When you see him as the creator majestic king that he is, the one who created you, the one who put you together, the one who's collected you, the one who's, who's made you and, and, and placed you where you are and given every chance you get and extended your life and provided for you and looked after you all of these years. Where would you be without Jesus? Where would you be without Jesus? Terrible. Just close your eyes. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Out it comes. It just flows out. An anthem of praise, of worship. Thank you. You're worth it. You're worth it. You're worth it. We don't get that if you don't think that way. And if you don't think that way, it's usually because you are distracted by other things. You need to go away, take some time away, and think about what it would be like if Jesus decided to let you go. Just let you go. Have your own way. Do your own thing. No, he doesn't. But just imagine if he did. Yeah, well, you too. But just imagine if he said, okay, have your own way. I'll give you over to the lusts of your flesh, to the thoughts of your mind. I'll give you over. You can have it then. That was my last opportunity for you. You go and have it now. Oh, that that scare you to death? Oh, that, this is why... This is why David says, do not take your Holy Spirit from me. If your conscience stops playing with you, if your heart stops telling you you're doing the wrong thing, if God says, okay, you just do what you're, uh, you, I'm talking to you, I'm talking to you, I'm talking to you, but you refuse me, refuse me, refuse me. I'm not talking anymore to you now. <gasps> oh, that scares me to death. That scares me to death. Does it scare you to death? Why do you push the line? Worship is honoring God, yielding to God, saying, you are the boss, I am the servant. You are worth it. That's what worship is, out of the heart. Okay, God bless you. Have coffee.